0: Good morning. I was thinking of a way to overcome the temptation to call this church by its old name. And so I came up with Mercy Bration. See what I did there? So it's good to be back. Always good to be back uh, during the Christmas New Year season. Um, as someone was mentioning earlier, uh, this is our eight-and-a-half-year point of being in Montana, living in Montana, and each year we've come back to, um, to Yulee during Christmas. Part of the reason is is because my wife's family is from Yulee, and uh, so I made her the promise when we moved away from her best friend, her mom, that we would come back every year uh, as the Lord provided. So it's always good to be back here, especially good to be back here because you guys didn't have to plow your parking lot this morning. Unbury yourself from a week full of snow. Uh, the day that we flew out of Montana to come to Florida, we got two feet in 24 hours, and then it's been snowing every day since then. So it's probably four or five feet of snow this week, and not too sad to be in Florida. So uh, the Lord has been faithful to our church in the past year. I know you guys um, get our newsletter, um, so I won't give a whole lot of updates other than to say that. Uh, This has been a very, probably one of our more difficult years uh, since we've moved to Montana, Um, and so we especially appreciate you guys praying for us and remembering us in your prayers and considering us a partner in ministry uh, there in Montana. Um, We've got some challenges ahead of us this year as well, but uh, we really ended on a high note. Um, I was telling Dan this morning that we sat around a table right before we came here with our deacons, their spouses, an elder and his spouse uh, that we affirmed this year in the church. And we're able to just share and recount God's faithfulness as a group, as a body um, of leadership within our church. And it's just near, neat to hear the testimony of how God is working and, um, and moving. And I, I trust that you guys have seen his faithfulness here at Mercy Bration. So grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Our text will be uh, verses 9 through 20, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and we'll specifically concentrate on verses 15 and 16 this morning um, for the sake of time, but I want to read the larger context here. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. "...from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so, Father, as we turn our hearts to your word this morning, we ask that you would prepare us for what you would have us to hear this morning. As we think about the wonderful opportunity we have, the wonderful calling we have to rehearse the truths that are before us this morning my prayer is that as you have prepared my heart to preach this morning, that you've prepared the hearer as well. And that we would receive what it is you were saying to us through this letter of Paul's, but more importantly, through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. More than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived. That was during exile, during his childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the wave as, waves as pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, and yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, yet all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun. And yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot being fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. And so once each week, multitudes congregate at worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past, proud statesmen of Greece and Rome, they've come and gone. The names of past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man multiplies more and more. The time has spread, 1900 years, between the people of this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, he still lives. His enemies could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by the devils as the risen personal Christ, our Lord and our Savior. These are words from a sermon in the early 1900s composed by a Pentecostal pastor, and the title of that sermon was, An Incomparable Christ. I read that to you only because when we come to the book of Colossians, and if we consider this time of the year, we, we do think of Christ. Many of you have spent probably weeks leading up to today, leading up to Christmas, marveling that such a Christ would come and dwell among us in human form. One who is far greater than all of his creation, greater than all of humanity in rank, and yet still cares for them so deeply. It was Martin Luther who said, the mystery of the humanity of Christ that He sunk Himself into our flesh, is beyond human understanding. And the letter of Colossians is addressed, written to a a body of believers of saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, as verse number 2 tells us of this chapter, who were being challenged to think differently than what we just read this morning. They were being charged by some erroneous teaching that had infiltrated the church. This false teaching apparently had arisen from within their own ranks, within their own congregation, their community of faith. In fact, several times throughout the book of Colossians, Paul uses the terms anyone or no one to basically charge these believers and warn them in a general way against receiving any other message other than the one preached by their minister that was received as a convert of Paul's, one that he had received from the Lord, even if it sounded compelling to reject it. At the root of this teaching, uh, there's some disagreement about what kind of teaching. It's not named in the book of Colossians, what exactly it really was, was going on. And some people believe it was Gnosticism. Or... But it, it, although it's not named, we, we do have several portraits of what this false teaching was. We know that it was based upon human philosophy from chapter number 2. It was based on the traditions of men rather than the foundation of and in Christ. In other words, these false teachers were encouraging the believers in Colossae to move away from God, to move away from the teaching of Christ, to higher things, to higher teachings. And Paul writes in the book of Colossians that they might not do that This is considered, the book of Colossians is considered the most lengthy discourse on Christology in the New Testament. It's a very Christ-centered book, as all Paul's writings are, but especially the book of Colossians. Because people were denigrating the nature, the character, the work of Jesus among them. And Paul's desire is that the believers within God's church not only recognize that Christ is above all in rank that he is incomparable, as we just read, but also that they comprehend the sufficiency of Christ to meet their every need. How does Paul accomplish this goal and purpose in the opening verses? By encouraging us, and the word that I want to give you this morning is the word rehearse. I want us to think about that this morning. He's encouraging these believers to rehearse what they understand and know to be true about God, about Christ, his distinct person, as it has been revealed in Scripture. First of all, I want to just spend most of our time looking at verses 15 and 16 this morning and just look at two of these. And I want to charge you that these are certainly not the only two truths that we are to rehearse as Christians about who Christ is. But for time's sake, we're going to look at two of these, and I challenge you to find more. But in the verse number 15, I want us to look at, first of all, the rehearsal of Christ as deity. The rehearsal of Christ as deity. Verse number 15 says, He, that is Christ the Redeemer from the scripture that we read before that, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is, Paul says, the exact representation of God. Now we understand for something to be in the image of something, we mean to say that it, it, it represents where it looks like, or it mirrors something else. Some of you that have known me for a while um, may say, minus the facial hair, that my son looks like me. He is a representation of me. He definitely has the Pittman gene in him. Man, we read of in Genesis chapter 1, was created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27. So what's the difference between man being created in the image of God, my son being created in my image or bearing my image, and what it says here? That Christ is the invis- image of the invisible God. Well, I think that term invisible kind of gives us a hint as to what the reason is and what the distinction is. Jesus is God made visible. No man has seen God, the scriptures say. So what we are talking about here is not a prototype of God. Jesus is not a form of God, but an exact replica of God, a precise copy. The Greek word there is protokos. The closest word that we could think of would be a photograph. 2 Corinthians, we read this elsewhere in Scripture. Here's a couple references. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 4. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Christ is the image of God there. Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. John 14.9. Jesus said unto them, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. The exact representation. No one else in creation can say that about themselves that they are the exact image of God. Now you say, well, we're created in the image of God, and Christians are to become and model their lives after who Christ is, who God is. That's correct. And we can express in some imperfect ways the attributes of God. For example, we can experience uh, and we can display godly wisdom when making choices here in life, can't we? We can exhibit love towards people, forbearance, Yet not even one of those attributes of of who God is can we in its completeness or its perfection perform as Christ has and is. He is the exact representation of the invisible God. He is also, Paul goes on to say, the firstborn over all creation. What you notice there is a connection between the divine and his creation. The first part of this is Christ is the the image of the invisible God. That's deity, divine. That's a realm that we don't work in. And then he is the firstborn of all creation. There's a connection between Christ the divine and his creation. By the way, this is not saying that Jesus was a created being, contrary to our JW friends. That's not what the scripture is teaching. Um, That would complicate, if we were saying that he was a created being, it would be complicated by the term firstborn because there's been other beings born before the manifestation or the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Adam being the first human. Also, it's not saying that Jesus had, its, had his beginning at the human birth. John 8, verse number 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ is eternal. So what is this teaching us? What is Paul emphasizing to these Colossian believers by pointing out that not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation? What he means to say and what he means to establish is that Jesus is first in rank over all his creation. He's first in rank over all his creation, he is the ranking one, he has all authority. So Christ has authority in heaven as God and over creation on earth as firstborn. He is deity. Now, I realize that as I, I say that and I read that this morning, as you reflect on that, it seems like something that's 101 for Christians. Right? As we understand what, who Christ is and we understand what the gospel is, we have to identify rightly who Christ is. So this seems very elementary. But think about this, where else this is mentioned throughout Scripture in terms of remembering these things. Why might Paul bring this to remembrance? Do you remember in the Old Testament the amount of times that the children of Israel were asked to remember God's past faithfulness, his past deliverance to them? Remember, remember, remember. Teach this to your children, to, to their children, to your grandchildren. Cause them to remember. Recall the story of God's faithfulness time and time again to them. It didn't stop there at the nation of Israel, though. For centuries, the the church as a body has rehearsed truths of Christ in various forms. For example, this morning before you, uh, there were some songs, admittedly, that I've never sung before. I've never even heard this morning. But it's simply a rehearsal of what we know to be true about God. And it's an important part, and we call it, we refer to it as worship music. All we're doing is rehearsing or recounting who God is and his nature and character and the way that he works. Uh, for centuries, the church has had things such as catechisms and, and creeds that they have formed. And they've recited these and rehearsed these. Why? There's a reason for this. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. As you think about Colossians uh, and, and who this was written to, these believers were pastored by a faithful brother. Paul alludes to Epaphras in chapter 1 and verse number 7 as a faithful minister meaning that he faithfully taught the Scriptures to these believers. Um, In chapter 4 and verse number 12, he talks about Epaphras again, the pastor of this church, and said that his desire was for this church body to stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. So Epaphras had poured out the Scriptures to him. This wasn't the first time they had heard this, and yet it seems kind of odd, doesn't it? That Paul says, here's who God is. Here's who Christ is. Why did he do this? Why does he cause them to rehearse this and reflect on this? Maybe an obvious answer as to why Paul encouraged them in something they already knew about Christ to be true to rehearse it is because of the false teachers around them. If we look at the context of the greater context of the book, we understand that there was erroneous teaching going on. People who were saying, move on beyond Christ to bigger and better and deeper truths than him. So maybe that's the context that we should consider in thinking about this. But I want to take it a step further, because on a practical level, I think there's something here for us as believers that is profoundly important. We could also add that there's always been around us, I'm not necessarily talking about mercibration. I'm just going to keep saying that so I don't change it up, I'm not just necessarily talking about our church, but in our own life, we could also agree that there have always been voices around us which tempt us to esteem or to rank human reasoning, our own logic, above Christ. I flew in last night, actually, from Arkansas. We, we got here, um, we landed in Yuley or, or Jacksonville last weekend, and then I flew out on Wednesday and got back last night. It was my mom's 70th birthday, and so my siblings and myself... Uh, all flew in and surprised her for her 70th birthday, and it was great. We had a, a blast. Uh, but on my flight uh, last night back from Little Rock to Atlanta uh, to get a connection, I was set beside a guy, and I'm usually the guy who has the headphones on. So if you ever fly beside me, it's not that I don't like you. I just, I just like my space. And, and uh, I was getting ready to put those on, and I got stuck beside the chatty guy. And, uh, and it was okay. It ended up being a really good conversation. There was a, a 20-year-old kid... Uh, named David from uh, Philadelphia. And um, he, he just, I mean, I don't, for some reason, I just must have had the talk about, with me about everything look on my face, because he just started opening up and asking me questions, and very nice, respectful, very intellectual young man. And um, he was talking about his struggles as a child, um, losing his dad on Christmas Day as, as a young person, and how that uh, he used some pretty colorful language to explain what he had been through in his life. And I just kept asking him questions and, and poking him a little bit more, and then finally he asked me about my vocation, well, which if you're a pastor, it's the last question you want to be asked, because usually that's a dead end to a conversation, oh, you know, you're a pastor, okay, I'm done, uh, but it was too late, he had already poured out his life, and so he asked about that, and inter- he asked a very engaging, interesting question as a follow-up from that. He stood there for a minute after I said I was a minister, and he said, let me ask you a question. He said, do you ever find it hard, as a minister of of, of, of minister clergy, whatever you are, to, to practice what you preach? And I don't know where that exactly came from. We didn't really get into that part of it, but I thought that was a very interesting question. Of course, I said, no, I never struggle with that. Always in the spirit, never in the flesh. <laughs> no, I, I talked to him and explained to him that I, I continually struggle with my own fleshly inclinations. Yes, I do struggle to practice what I preach. Despite knowing, isn't this amazing, the price that Christ has paid for my spiritual freedom from sin, the reign of sin in my life. I still struggle with that. And I walked off the plane with David's cell phone number, a book that I asked him to follow up and read, after I'd shared the gospel with him, and I hope that that gospel seed that has been planted in him will one day produce the desired result of salvation. Isn't it true that we're all flawed in continually choosing to rank ourselves above Christ as we give in to our sinful desires? I think Paul's getting at something here. He's not just refuting a false teaching. He's trying to get these Colossian believers to understand the importance of rehearsing the deity of Christ and what it means to them. I think of the words of Job here, Job 12, 13, which speaks of God when it says, With him our wisdom and might, to him belong counsel and understanding. We know those things to be true, but how often do we rehearse those? There's something to this. The Puritan John Owen put it like this. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. When I fixate on the glory of Christ, when I dwell on the deity of Christ. We need to rehearse that. Number two, and lastly, we need to rehearse Christ as creator. Verse number 16. For by him, again, a very elementary truth, all things were created by him. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of these things were created through him and for him. I have a question for you this morning. When is the last time you seriously committed yourself to recalling the implications of Christ as Creator? I live in a beautiful part of the world. Outside of my door is the Absorkey Mountain Range, the other side is the Gallatin. I live in a valley. I live 42 miles from Yellowstone National Park. Beautiful country. People travel there all summer long. With there RVs and motorcycles to see these wonderful landscapes. But I'm not talking about that necessarily. Not just the landscape of here in Florida, the beautiful beaches, the nice sunsets. My guess is that as we read verse number 16 and we t- think about and, and begin to reflect on God as creator, your mind goes back to Sunday school. And the flannel graph board, right? And the, the, the birds on this day, and the animals, and the, the sea, and the, the sun, the moon, the stars. That's likely, for most of us, a time that we remember when we reflected on God as creator. Why is it that we think we have graduated from that to the point where we no longer see we no longer maintain the wonder of that. What does rehearsing this truth bring to the forefront of our mind? There's three things that I want to highlight here in verse number 16 as it relates to Christ as creator. First of all, when we rehearse Christ as creator, we mean to emphasize the totality or the whole of creation being traced back to Christ. Look what he says, "...for by him all things." were created. N.T. Wright puts it like this, wherever you look, or whatever realities you think of, you discover entities which, even if they do not acknowledge the fact, owe their very existence to Christ. Everywhere you look, the existence of Christ, the existence of them is related to Christ. Nothing or no one that exists, Paul says, can independently say, I am my own creator. Everything came into existence by him and because of him. By him, Paul says, all things were created. The term all here also stresses the superiority of Christ over all of his creation. There's a stark contrast between that which has been created and the Creator Himself. Hebrews uh, 1 and verses 10 and 11 put it like this, And Thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of Thine hands. They shall perish, but Thou remainest. They all shall wax old, as doth a garment So what we mean to say when we acknowledge and we rehearse Christ as creator, we're emphasizing the totality of creation that can be traced back to Christ. For by him, all things were created. By him and because of him, creation exists. Secondly, when we rehearse Christ as creator, we are recognizing that he is sovereign over all of his creation. Wayne Grudem describes the sovereignty of God over his creation like this. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purposes." John Piper put it like this, whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do a thing that he despises. He is never backed into a corner where the only recourse that he has is to do something he hates to do. He does what he pleases. And when we think about creation, it should cause us to come to this conclusion, that God is sovereign. Notice how Paul elaborates on what he means by all. He goes on to say, by him were all things created. What things, Paul? Things that are in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. In other words, both natural and supernatural order are subject to the Lord's rule over them. No single component of creation competes with Christ. He's incomparable. None of it comes into being without his creative genius or operates independent of his rule. No big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3 says, God upholds all things by the word of his power. Psalm 97, 9. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted above all gods. Matthew nineteen twenty-six teaches us that with God all things are possible. Psalm twenty-four, one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, it all belongs to him. In the total expanse of human life, there's not a single square inch of which Christ, who is sovereign, does not declare that is mine. God is sovereign over all creation. We are to rehearse this. This is something we are not just to take into our mind and repeat out verbally, but to dwell on, to reflect on regularly, consistently. Thirdly, when we rehearse Christ as creator, we are acknowledging the goal and the purpose of all creation. All things that are created were created By him, he says, and for him. The Westminster Catechism answers the question, what is the chief end of man? Like this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and in that glory, enjoy him forever. This is why we rehearse this. Not simply that we have a greater image rather than Sunday school flannel graph, but we understand more. But it's the idea that we live for his glory. All things were created by him and for him. Perhaps Paul has in mind, again, going back to the false teaching, where they had introduced the worship of angels. We find this in the book of Colossians, where these erroneous teachers were trying to encourage people to look to angels as some form of of deity, equal with Christ. And Paul makes that distinction. No, no, no. They were created by him. Angels were created by him and for his purposes. Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one to whom it all came into existence. And he stands at the end as the goal of the universe. Not only does the act of creation point to Christ, but its result points to him as well. Creation being spoken into existence was for the glory of Christ, and it exists even today to give him praise and glory. You've probably heard the story of Leonardo da Vinci, the renowned artist, who took a close friend to criticize his masterpiece known as the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, And he asked him, you know, what what do you think of this? What do you see in this? And his friend remarked, the most striking thing about this picture is the cup. The artist, Leonardo da Vinci, took his brush and wiped out the cup, saying, nothing in my painting shall attract more attention than the face of my master. I think that's the purpose of rehearsing. I think that's why Paul calls these things to remembrance in the lives of these Colossian believers and to us today. So that as we look to the person of Christ, as we reflect on him, and as we study him, we become less enthralled with the world around us. What a great goal for 2018. What a great ambition, a great streamlined focus for 2018 to meditate on, to think on the person, the character, the nature, the work of Christ, to dwell on it in such a way that as the song says, that the things of earth will grow strangely, strangely, dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning, for its truth, for the conviction that you bring through your spirit in it, and Lord, for the challenge that it provides for us in our frail Christian beings, even as, as people who claim to know you. As David mentioned on the plane last night, we have a hard time Practicing what we preach, and in order to live lives as Paul intended for these Colossian believers to live lives that, as we read about this morning, that are fully pleasing to the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Him. How that comes about is by partly rehearsing truth about you. Lord, Mercy Hill stands as an oasis for that purpose. They provide opportunities of service, of ministry, of edification for those reasons. That its congregants would become so engrossed with the person of Christ that even if an angel from heaven seemingly came down and preached another gospel, they would not listen because Christ is enough, He is sufficient. Cause us, Lord, to sense that. Cause us to recommit ourselves afresh and anew as we begin to kick off a new year to rehearsing, to recall, to remember your Son, Christ. Continue to work in lives here at Mercy Hill, Lord. And even this morning, in the stillness of this moment, if we are honest with ourselves and understand that there may be things that are calling us away from that. If we've been distracted and not purposefully committed ourselves to dwelling on your deity, your act as creator, let us recommit ourselves and renew our passion to that this morning. In Jesus' name.